Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In 2011, Dr. Jessica Harris published a book called High on the Hog, which tells the story of how African-Americans played a key role in the growth of American cuisine. 
From cooking for George Washington and Thomas Jefferson to working as trail cooks as the cowboy culture moved west. She joins us today to talk about her book, which has also been turned into a four-part Netflix series. I think people are watching with open minds, and that is extraordinarily gratifying because it means that people are willing to hear that Hemings is the person who probably brought macaroni and cheese to this country and french fries and ice cream. Jefferson was the person who who might have enjoyed eating them, but he wasn't preparing them. Also coming up, we learn how to make Istanbul's famous minced meat kebabs, and Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett tell us what it really means to egg someone on. But first is my conversation with journalist Seth Berkman about why Subway sandwiches have risen to fame on Korean television. Seth, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. What is a K-drama? So K-drama is short for Korean drama, which basically encapsulates any sort of hour-long program on Korean television. There are ones about athletes, ones about musicians, there are businessmen, there are young teenagers in high school. A lot of shows are based around revenge. You know, the drama is really cranked up to 10. There are a lot of intense car chases, for example, and a lot of cliffhangers and unexpected turns that you might not see. So they do run the gamut in terms of plot points, but also in terms of just, you know, what the stories are about. And we're talking about these today in part because they've become very popular here. I think you noted that there are over 40 K-dramas now on Netflix, right? Right. Um, Particularly over the past year, as a lot of people were streaming, it seems that K-dramas really took off in popularity stateside. Uh, They're much more accessible for people here in the U.S., So let's get to the topic at hand, which is product placements. And a lot of them, of course, have to do with food. Could you just explain why K-dramas do lots of product placements? So about 10 years ago, product placements became essentially legal in South Korea. There had always been a sort of informal marketplace. So you could be watching a Korean drama and notice, you know, a Korean soda company and the labels facing the camera, but it wasn't excessively blatant, I would say. But 10 years ago, the broadcast regulations, they changed to allow product placements in Korean dramas. And one of the reasons they did that was the primetime slots on terrestrial stations, they're not allowed to show commercial breaks during the show. And so for companies trying to get their wares in front of what are the most watched shows on Korean television, it was really hard. And so product placement changed that As you write, a Subway sandwich saved the life of a suicidal man, a robot (laughs) vacuum cleaner tampered with a crime scene, and a Breitling watch stopped time to save the protagonist from evil villains. We're talking about uh, full integration of products right into the plot, right? Right. And in terms of just what a product placement looks like, you know— if, if a couple is going on a date to a fried chicken spot, the scene starts with a zoom in of the store, of the logo, of the company branding. As they're taking bites of their meal, the camera zooms in on the sauce glistening off a drumstick. And as they bite it, the crunchy sound, them licking their lips. And so like it's a full scene devoted to this product that whatever company has invested their money into showcasing on the drama. And so seeing this for the first time, I was just coming from this observation of, oh, this is really ridiculous, funny, and interesting. And that's how I got into the idea of reporting on how Subway has just really embraced being harbingers of this product placement and, and took it to another level. The the one I watched, one of the ones I watched, the, the main character is a ghost. And the whole scene revolves around the fact ghosts can't eat unless someone directly offers the food to them. So the older gentleman offers the Subway sandwich to this unseen ghost. And that's just, you know, the sandwich itself from Subway was the absolute core driving, you know, dramatic point of that scene. Right. And and on the show Goblin, I, I thought it was funny that you would have the Grim Reaper just sitting down after a hard day's work of, I guess, 
taking people to death and he's unwinding by having a subway sandwich (laughs) or another show crash landing on you which is very heavily centered on north korea and at one point soldiers from north korea sneak over the border to south korea and so they're always seen hanging out in subway um they become infatuated with eating subway sandwiches you know that's one of the things that they enjoy as they're able to cross the border into democracy is going to subway and there was there's another one called Subway. And, and the entire plot is about a young woman who develops a crush on someone who works at Subway, right? Right. So Subway has really dove right in. Last year, they created their own mini K-drama and put it on YouTube, taking place in the Subway restaurant. A young woman goes one day and sees this young man working there and just develops this huge crush on him and the way each show starts it's very deliberate it starts with almost a slow motion zoom of someone making a subway sandwich (laughs) and describing the ingredients and once again a close-up of it someone you know taking a bite and you hear the crunch of the fresh lettuce in their mouth and the bread i mean they make it look as good as possible right yeah so the shops are Brand new glass windows and fluorescent lighting. So the green and yellow of Subway is just eye-catching. It just seemed like on Saved by the Bell or Beverly Hills 90210 when all the cool teens would hang out at like the local diner. Subway is very much centered and pictured on these shows as the center of social life. Is this the leading edge of what we might expect to see here? If enjoying a Subway sandwich is integral to the drama... That's a million times more useful than a 30-second advertisement. That's a good question. Earlier this year, the Korean government actually approved the law saying that commercial breaks could be run on terrestrial stations in South Korea. In speaking to one of the reps at Subway, you know, that law doesn't do much for them. The money that they would have to pay to buy an ad just doesn't add up to kind of what they're able to get through product placement. From people that I've spoken to in Korea who watch a lot of Korean dramas, I think they're very aware of what's going on, but it's more so just kind of, they laugh it off in a way. And so I think audiences in the West are much more attuned of when something is being shoved down their throat. For example, just talking to Korean Americans who are very avid K-drama watchers, they're not a fan of product placement at all. It's very obvious to them. And so they'll run to the message boards and complain about, oh, did you see how ridiculous it was that this person was doing this with a Subway sandwich or this vacuum cleaner or this coffee product? So I assume that all these product placements, which cost you know millions of dollars, the sales are there, and now Subway's expanding like crazy, right? Yeah, Subway now has over 430 restaurants in South Korea. A few years ago, it was in the 200s, and so there are more and more Subways showing up. And in terms of the actual food... There aren't that many sandwich shops. For example, there aren't delis around the corner where you can just go order a turkey and cheese sandwich. Um, And so in terms of just availability, if you would like a sandwich, Subway is one of the main options. And of course, it doesn't hurt if you're watching your favorite K-drama and it's featured on there 18 times within an episode. Seth, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I think I'm actually hungry for Subway. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Chris. That was Seth Berkman. His article for the New York Times is Korean TV's unlikely star, Subway Sandwiches. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she also stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. I know a lot of books have been done about Julia, Julia Child and movies and things, but I was just wondering, we're thinking about her recently for whatever reason. I, we miss her, of course. I was thinking about her legacy, right? Because French cooking now is not what it was back in the 60s and 70s. What do you think down the road, 30, 40 years from now, will be her legacy in terms of American cuisine? You know, it's interesting because it's one of the oddest things and it's counterintuitive and it was counterintuitive at the time. She wrote the, you know, Art of French Cooking, these two tomes that were enormously complicated. And then she went on TV and made these enormously complicated recipes, all the while saying, this is easy. Anybody can do it. You can do it. And somehow 
A, she entertained everyone, but B, she actually did get people cooking or thinking about cooking. So I think it's more that she empowered home cooks to get back into the kitchen, whether they made her 12-page lobster bisque or not. She was an inspiration for the home cook. And because she was so gawky awkward and made mistakes, she made you feel like, I can make mistakes too. It's okay. So that's what I think. What do you think? Well, there has to be something deep in our culture which triggers something about her because her legacy, you know, no one else has gotten many books and Hollywood movies and stuff. There's a deep connection with her. I think she represents something in the American psyche that is substantial. I think it's sort of a can-do. Here's someone who didn't grow up cooking, who sort of invented herself out of whole cloth, right? Uh-huh. And I think that's what it is. She's very American in the sense she picked up something, got interested in it, and just through pure personality and sheer force of will became this icon. I think that's about the self-made nature of the American character, right? Yeah. For me, I think that's what it is, and that's what I always loved about her the most. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I will also throw in that she was one of the funniest people I ever met. So that helps. Yeah, she had a keen sense of humor and didn't mind poking fun at you. Right, or herself. Or herself. Yes. Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is John. Hi, John. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Franconia, New Hampshire. Oh, lovely. How can we help you today? Well, I've got one of these questions that I've had since the 1970s. Oh, dear. It has to do with corn muffins that I experienced at the diners on Long Island, New York. And I've never been able to replicate or figure out the recipe for it. The muffins were corn muffins, and they were very dense, heavy, and moist, and they weren't overly sweet. They were so heavy that they didn't have crowns. They were actually recessed, and they were burnt around the edge. I asked one chef uh, that I worked with for a while, and he said, to double the recipe with eggs and butter, and I tried that, and that didn't work. I think it has to do with the fat and the sugar, because that, to me, is what would make the muffin get dark. If you add sugar to cornbread, usually it's white sugar, but I think you might get a darker color and moister texture with something like brown sugar or molasses. These corn muffins were very grainy as well. Yeah. Well, that probably had to do with the kind of cornmeal they used. Chris, do you have any thoughts? Yes, I do. I think this was a cornbread recipe baked in a muffin tin. I don't think it was a corn muffin. I think it was cornbread. And when I make cornbread, I do it in a cast iron skillet. And when you say brown around the edges, was it around the very top or around the edges and the sides? It was edges and the sides and the top. Here's what they probably did. Like with cast iron, a typical cornbread, you preheat the pan, so this would be the muffin tin, in the oven, and it's also been brushed with oil, right? And then you take the tin out very carefully, pour the batter, and it sizzles right in the pan. And since it's cornbread, it's going to be a coarser texture, and the browning is going to come from the preheated pan. You'll get a nice dark on the bottom of the sides. The top, I'm not quite sure why that would be brown so much, but it just may be that they baked it in a very hot oven. Maybe they baked it on the top rack of the oven. But I think it's cornbread baked in a muffin tin. So is there a particular oil that you're using when you're making this? Just use an all-purpose vegetable oil. Yeah. And I agree with you. It's so much better than a corn muffin, which is much too sweet. And it's cake. It's dessert. One last thing. There's a cookbook author named, and fasten your seatbelt, Crescent Dragon Wagon. That is indeed her name. She did a whole book on cornbread. So you might want to check that out. There might be something in there. All right. I'll do that. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for calling. Thank Thank you you so much. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jasmine. How are you? Where are you calling from? I'm great. Well, I'm actually calling from Guatemala, though I'm from New Hampshire. So how can we help you? Well, I am listening to all the old podcast episodes, and on one of them, you guys were talking about spices and seasonings, and your suggestion to the caller was 
get yourself some good cinnamon, some high quality, nice cinnamon, as opposed to, you know, the swill that you buy at the grocery store. (laughs) And I know that you can get varying quality of spices, but for some reason, it never occurred to me that you can get good cinnamon. So I was just wondering, can you guys suggest some brands to look for or some qualities to look for? First of all, just for regular cinnamon, that is not salon cinnamon, which we'll get to in a second. Burlap and Barrel is a spice company that goes directly to small farmers. You know, most spices pass through many hands. So single source, that's the regular cassia cinnamon, which is great. And there's a huge difference between the good stuff and did I actually use the word swill on the show about supermarkets? Oh, no, no you never say that. Oh, I never say that. I, anyway. No, you're not a snob. No, Hush no. my mouth. But uh, the salon cinnamon, salon cinnamon is just a very different animal entirely. It doesn't really taste to me like cinnamon. It's very floral. It's almost savory. So if you're expecting in an apple pie or a cookie to get a cinnamon flavor and you use salon cinnamon – It's not going to be disappointed, but it's just a very different experience. So I I think you should buy both, but you should taste it before you use it because you'll be surprised. It's very different. Sarah? Yeah. I mean, I agree with Chris. There's two main kinds of cinnamon. There's the cassia and the salon, and a lot of people say salon is the true cinnamon. Cassia, there's several Mm -hmm. different kinds. There's the Indonesian, which is what you mostly get in the supermarket, the Chinese that we never see, and then from Saigon, which is really fragrant and flavorful, which is, might be fun to try as well. It's sort of spicy. You know, if I was going to try two new ones, I might try the Sagan Cassia as well as the Salon. I agree with Chris. It's nice to go to a, you know, a place like Burlap and Barrel that will deal directly with the farmer. And there's also a guy in New okay. York, Lior Sercaz, L-I-O-R, and he has La Boite, B-O-I-T-E, Spice Company. Mm-hmm. For very short money, right? Cinnamon or any other spice lasts a long time in your kitchen. It's worth that extra few mm-hmm. bucks. It makes all the difference. So. Yeah. That's my speech. Okay. okay. Jasmine, it's been a pleasure and best of luck in Guatemala. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. Thank you for answering yeah. my question. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. If you want to expand your pantry or find a new favorite recipe, please give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three, or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Alyssa. I'm calling from Sydney, New York. Hi, Alyssa. How can we help you today? My question is about chipotle peppers and adobo. I have a recipe that I use. It's in the crock pot, and it uses just two of those peppers. So when I buy the smallest can that I can find, I still have quite a few left in the can. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions of how to use up some of the rest of those rather than going to waste. Oh, my God. I have so many suggestions. For start, what you can do is take them out of the can. I always have them in the freezer. They freeze beautifully. So I put plastic wrap on a sheet pan and put a chipotle down and then a tablespoon of sauce on top of it. You know, set them up like that. Put them in the freezer and freeze them just like that. And then once they're frozen, you can wrap them up and put them in a bag together. And then when I have a recipe, I just take one out and use it. So ways I use it is I chop them up you know, both the chili and the adobo, and I throw into stews, soups. I love it in mayonnaise or in ranch dressing. I add them chopped up to the dressing for my coleslaw. You know how coleslaw is usually mayonnaise, ketchup, maybe a little bit of vinegar and brown sugar. Well, I put the chipotle and the adobo sauce in there, chop it up and put it in, and it's so good. It sort of balances the sweetness and the brown sugar. It's great in barbecue sauce. It's great as a glaze. It's wonderful in cornbread. Anywhere you want smoke and heat, it just goes beautifully. Chris, I'm sure you have some ideas too. Yeah, what I do is I put the can back in the fridge for three or four weeks and throw them out (laughs) because I forget they're there, which is actually what most people end up doing. Oh, they can't. No, no. I've now taken to the same thing. I use parchment paper on a uh, half-baking sheet and freeze them exactly the way Sarah suggested, and that works pretty well. And then what's your favorite thing to add them to? I make a lot of stews, especially for entertaining. I love adding one or two to a beef stew, you know, for example. I just think it gives that undercurrent of flavor that you can't quite 
pinpoint what it is. It just adds, it's a foundation. It's like anchovies and oil, right? It, it gives you that deep, rich base. That's how I use it very often. Alyssa, do you think you'd pursue any of those situations? Yes. I love the idea of freezing them and just using them as I want to. It definitely takes away the guilt of buying the whole can just to use one or two. But I do like the idea of using it to help develop flavor in some other dishes like stews. I could see myself doing that. Great. Yeah. You don't need a recipe. You just throw it in. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So great. Yep. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for All right. calling. Our yes, pleasure. thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's my conversation with Dr. Jessica Harris. That and much more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. 
You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with culinary historian Dr. Jessica Harris. She's the author of 12 books documenting the foodways of the African diaspora, including High on the Hog, which was recently adapted into a Netflix documentary series. Dr. Harris, uh, welcome to Milk Street. Well, hi. It's usually Chris, so if it's Chris, please, Jessica, and thank you for having me. Okay, uh, that's, that's even better. So the, the title uh, of the documentary in your book is High on the Hog. Does that just refer to the, the better cuts of the pig, or, or does it have some other meaning? It has a little bit slightly different meaning. I mean, and I think one of the things that's interesting about it is that it goes back to the old Master and John stories that were sort of self-deprecating humor that came out of enslavement, John being the kind of trickster who always manages to get over on old master. And so um, I'm going to read a brief abbreviated version of the part that is actually in the introduction to the book. And it says, old master killed about 40 or 50 hogs every year. He had John to help him. When he was ready to pay him off, he said, John, here's your pig head, your pig's feet, and your pig ears. And John said, thank you, boss. So John killed hogs for about five years that way. That's what he got for his pay. But then, John moved on to the back of the place and got himself three hogs. Old Master didn't even know he had a hog. Next winter at hog killing time, Old Master went down after John. Old Master says, John? John comes to the door and says, yes, sir. Old Master says, be down to the house early in the morning. I want to kill hogs. Be there about 5.30. John asks, well, old master, what you paying? I'll pay you like I always did. I'll give you the head and all the ears and all the pig's feet and all the tails. And John said, Well, old master, I can't, because I'm eating higher on the hog than that now. I got three hogs of my own, and I eat spare ribs, backbone, pork chops, midland, ham, and everything else. I eat high on the hog now. That's a great story. So I think it speaks to everybody's desire to eat high on the hog. <laughs> There's a sentence I thought really expressed the sentiment of the book. Creativity and talent and grace expressed by the enslaved under conditions that range from the unpleasant to the unspeakable. And I thought that was a way of taking a, a very difficult topic and finding uh, – finding something inspirational about it. That's kind of true. I mean, I think the whole idea of grace and the idea of joy are very much entwined in, certainly in the book and in the, the Netflix series. In those dark times, people found and created moments of joy. They had to, because without joy, it's sort of hard to survive. And so I think joy is is a fitting subtext. There were so many things that um, I did not know that really did surprise me. Um, and you talk about, in what, on the coast of West Africa, there was a Creole society that was part European influence with local African culture even had some Catholic influence at one point. Could you just talk about that? Because I, I had no idea that existed. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this whole Atlantic Creole world we're learning more and more about, there certainly were mixings and m mixtures of people. You know, we tend to think of peoples as being balkanized, but they weren't. Certainly on the island of Goree and in Saint-Louis de Senegal, there were a whole class of women known as signar. And um, the signar were, um, were women who were the mistresses of, in many cases, the slave traders. They had a very creolized society that was an admixture of European and, and French. 
You also mentioned that some of the, the food, the cooking, was extremely sophisticated. You talk about a famous dish that's skin, bone, stuffed with forcemeat of fish. Oh, Dem Farcia la Sainte-Louisienne. Yes. There's a scene, certainly in the first episode, where uh, Romuald Hazoumé, who is a Yoruba artist from Benin, sets a table of food that would have been eaten prior to European contact in, uh, in Benin, in what was then Dahomey. And it's amazingly sophisticated. Basically, we know, we being Americans, Americans in the largest sense of the word, but also certainly including African Americans, don't know very much about the history of the continent. Let me ask you, so when you were in the first episode, and by the way, you were terrific, um, what surprised you most from a culinary point of view? I think the meal that Romuald Hazoumé served, because there was one thing, it's, it's a little sort of a beat, a vignette in that dining scene, um, when Karel, who is the blogger, selects what's like a, a fritter, and it's a millet one, and she says, I'll have the millet mm-hmm. one. And um, he says, mm, that's for warriors, and she says, Amazon. And he told us that that particular fritter, millet fritter, was actually the war food of the Amazons. Hmm. Uh, the king of Dahomey uh, had a woman's fighting force that were referred to by the French as les Amazones du Dahomey, the Dahomeyan Amazons. And that was, in fact, that fritter was their war food. It's hard, crunchy. But it could be, you know, it could be carried so hmm. that the women would go into battle with a pouch full of these hard fritters and a gourd of water. And that could sustain them on long marches, that could sustain them in their military campaigns. So that's the subtext, hmm. and I think that's the brilliant part of it all. You, you talk about very famous cooks, black cooks here in America, two in particular. Hercules, who cooked for George Washington. Um, you want to just tell that story briefly? Because I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. In very brief compass, the, uh, the story is that, you know, Hercules was very much celebrated. He was George Washington's chef. He was noted, uh, and he made a fair amount of money. I think he made as much as $200 a year, which was an extraordinary amount of money, and he made it from selling the um, the tallow and the the sort of meaty fat leftovers because tallow was used in making candles. Right. He was reputed to be a dandy. People talk about him walking out in Philadelphia with a gold-handled cane and a, a <laughs> silk waistcoat and, you know, very, very much the bon vivant kind of man about town. But um, the sad, diabolical, and probably all too... American part of the story is he certainly is enslaved by Washington. And not only is he enslaved by Washington, but Philadelphia had laws whereby people who remained in that town for more than six months could consider themselves free. And so Washington makes a point of returning all of his enslaved people back to Mount Vernon before the six-month time expired so that they remained enslaved. But what happens is Hercules is returned to Mount Vernon and escapes, escapes during the festivities for Washington's birthday, which I think is somehow incredibly fitting. (laughs) And um, at the time of my writing of the book, people weren't sure where he had gone. It seems now that they have determined that he might very well have come to New York City and taken the name of his previous owner, which was Posey, so he became Hercules Posey, and went on to live and die in New York City. Hmm. Uh, You talk about after emancipation and the Civil War, uh, it was a very difficult time for obvious reasons, but um, the food service industry was actually a place to make a living, and there were some very famous 
caterers and others uh, in the, in that business. Thomas Dorsey from Philadelphia, for example. You mentioned some of the menus like Filet de Boeuf Piquet, Canvas Back Duck, Charlotte Russe, Lady Fingers, Champagne Jelly. And then in, in New York City, Thomas Downing, who built an oyster vault, which kept the oysters fresh in seawater. So there were in the in the food hospitality business and service business, there were a lot of many very successful blacks in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century. Well, right. I mean and you find a Bogle. Um Bogle who becomes so famous in Philadelphia circles. And what Bogle and some of the others do is basically create catering as we know it today uh, with the whole idea of uh, renting butlers, people who were not able to employ their own butlers full time could rent butlers for various occasions and so you get something that then approximates catering as we know it. So let's talk about the Netflix special for a second. What did you hope would come out of this that would be surprising to people who watched it? Are there things in there that you think when someone watches it are going to just be illuminating or or tell a story that they've never heard before? Well, I think that what I'm seeing online and what I guess people are saying in general is just how surprised they are. I think people are watching with open minds and that is extraordinarily gratifying because it means that people are willing to hear that Hemings is the person who probably brought macaroni and cheese to this country and french fries and ice cream. Uh, He was the cook. Jefferson was the person who who might have enjoyed eating them, but he wasn't preparing them. So, I mean, I think that that the fact that people are, are listening and are I guess, bad uh, analogy, but hungry for the information. I think, generally speaking, people are willing to say, oh, I never thought of that before, but that makes perfect sense. And then once that light bulb dawns, then there's so many other doors that open. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure, as always, speaking with you. And I just, uh, I love your research and your voice and your writing and uh, you bring so much to the table thank you so much thank you so much for having me at your table chris that was dr jessica harris her book high in the hog a culinary journey from africa to america was published in 2011 the documentary series based on the book is now available on netflix as the well-known politician daniel patrick moynihan once quipped You're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. And this is exactly why historians, such as Jessica Harris, do us such a great service. The diversity of experience for all Americans becomes deeper and more exciting every time historians, such as Jessica Harris, unfold the pages of history. This is Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Turkish mincemeat kebabs. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, many, many years ago, I had spent a couple months in Istanbul. And you think you know a place because you were in Istanbul and some of the recipes. And one of the things you think you know in that the Levant, that part of the world, are kebabs. But it turns out Adana kebabs, Turkish kebabs, are actually quite different, right? They are different. First of all, they look different. They're bright red. And that's from the pepper that they use. The kapya pepper is a Turkish fresh red pepper. In our version, we're going to use just a classic red bell pepper, but we're also going to add a little bit of paprika and some Aleppo pepper and tomato paste. That's going to kind of highlight that red color. Also add a lot of flavor and really bind those kebabs together. So is this like ground meat? I think there they would actually use a big knife and mince it, right? They do. They use a three-foot knife. Scimitar, yeah. To do this. So we're not going to use that three-foot knife, but we are going to use a food processor, and we're using boneless short ribs, and we process the meat in the food processor with those flavorful ingredients before we form our kebabs. They get formed into a log 
on a skewer, and it's really important to use a flat skewer, not a round skewer here, because it makes it a lot easier to form them. And then you make these little ridges in the meat. And those will allow, when you grill them, you'll get some kind of diversity in texture. Some of it will be a little bit charred, and some of it will be a little more tender. No, I love the round skewers, because everything just flips around and spins. (laughs) I mean, in general, flat skewers are a better choice. Is this served with anything at the end, or does it just come off the grill? It is. So you grill it on an indirect fire, which means hot on one side, cool on the other. It starts out on the hot side. You want to place them perpendicular to the grates so they're easier to move. Move them to the cooler side of the grill to finish cooking. And it's served with a cumin salt and a yogurt sauce. So to go back to my original premise, things you think you know, but you don't. Donna kebabs are delicious. They're red. Uh, They have a wonderful depth of flavor. I love the cumin salt at the end. And they're not the kebab you thought you knew, right? That's right. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe and all of our recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett get cracking on the language of eggs. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Ken Gill from Rogers, Arkansas. Hi, Ken. How can we help you today? Well, I've got a little bit of a predicament. I've got this thing called Alpagal syndrome, so I can't eat red meat. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I really love is, you know, good spaghetti and meatballs. And I only use turkey now for meatballs. And the meatballs always seem to be like really hard and tough. I'm just looking for ways to make them moister and softer. Turkey is a problem. It's very lean. That's the problem. We have to figure out how to get moisture in there. What are in your meatballs? Usually just the ground turkey. I usually use breadcrumbs, an egg, mince up a bunch of onions, a little bit of garlic, and a little bit of seasoning. I always put fennel in my meatballs. 
Well, those all seem like good ideas. I'm going to throw out something else, which is is shredded Napa cabbage. You don't really taste it. Napa cabbage is not real cabbagey, you know, like the tight, hard cabbages. It's sort of light and mm-hmm. fluffy, and it does provide a lot of moisture. You could also up the onions or saute the mushrooms and cool them before you add them to the turkey. I think that would help. Try the Napa cabbage, just, you know, like a cup or so. I don't know how much uh, meat you're working with. And I think you'll be impressed with what it does. Now, I'm sure Chris has some suggestions. The obvious thing is to make a panade. So you take bread or breadcrumbs like panko. You soak them in milk until you get a nice paste out of it. It takes just a couple minutes. Uh, Mash it with a fork. And then you add that mixture to the ground turkey with your flavorings and seasonings. And that's the same thing you would do with a hamburger, right? If you want a nice moist burger, especially if you're cooking a burger for kids and you want to get it to a higher temperature. So just use a panade. You know, for a pound of ground turkey, I'd use two slices of white bread and enough milk to moisten it and then mash it with a fork. The Napa thing sounds, I have to say, intriguing. How fine would you have to grate that uh, cabbage? You don't have to grate it. You just slice it thin, sort of like chiffonade style. Yes, exactly. Because it's so tender, you'll see it will melt in there. Well, Sarah, I have to say that is the most interesting suggestion. (laughs) Uh, There's never a dull moment here at Milk Street, right? So uh, I learn something every day. Right. This is true. Okay. Well, thanks, Ken. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling. Yeah. All right. Give it a shot. Okay. Yes. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to solve your culinary mysteries. Give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jim from Chicago. How are you? Good. How are you? How can we help you? Doing great, thanks. Good. I have been trying to make the homemade Rice Krispie treats from Stella Park's Brave Tart book. And it is astoundingly good flavor. But every time I make it, the Rice Krispies go stale within, you know, 10 hours. And I want to figure out what I'm doing wrong. I think that recipe has a reputation. (laughs) It's like, it does go stale. They don't last that long. I think the commercial ones have more of a preservative in it. You know, high fructose corn syrup, dextrose. That's the nature of that recipe, I think, pretty much. Sarah, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I agree 100%. I and mean, it's like if you ever buy artisanal bread or make your own and then you leave it on the counter for more than a few days, you'll notice it starts to get a little green around the edges. And that's because there's no preservatives in it. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. I'd love to ask, though, because I love Rice Krispie Treats, actually. Are they so much better than the regular ones? They are so much better. It's hard to describe how much better. You know, I'd expect them to go stale after like a day, but this is literally like eight hours later. I just had a thought, though. When you say they go stale, you mean they get hard and dry? and Yeah, the Rice Krispies get chewy, so they're tough to chew. Initially, when I make it and form it, the Rice Krispies are crisp and fine, but 10 hours later, it's like they got wet. Oh. Hmm. That's different because, you know, I can understand her marshmallow recipe But the marshmallow's got so much sugar in it, I wouldn't think that that would be a problem. So obviously it's attracting moisture from the air and it's sogging out the whole thing, right? Could you crisp them up in the oven maybe for a second iteration and see what they're like, you know, if you put them in a hot oven for a little while? I haven't tried that. I'd wonder if they'd start to melt though. Yeah, I think they Mm. would. I think what's happening is the moisture from the air is being drawn into the Rice Krispie Treat. And that moisture is changing the texture, right? But I don't understand why it doesn't happen with regular marshmallows. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just because the dextrose, the high fructose corn syrup, is a different chemistry to it. And maybe it doesn't attract moisture like her homemade recipe does. That's the only thing I can think of. But boy, now you've got me. I got to go make this now. I'm sorry. Yeah. This, no, this no, is me one too. of my, I like moon pies and I like Rice Krispie treats. So. Yeah, no, no, this sounds wonderful. But also I'm still trying to think about what you could do with it afterwards. So maybe I need to make it just to figure out what to do with the leftovers. It's so good that we eat it even though it hurts our jaws by the end. <laughs> wow. I wouldn't be throwing them out. I'll tell you that much.
Oh, absolutely not. I think yeah. Chris and I might need to do some homework and uh, report back. Stella Parks, uh, Braveheart, is one of my favorite books of yes, all time. She's great. I got to go grab the book out of my library and get in the kitchen. Yeah, me too. Jim, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much for your help. Take care. You too. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Uta, and I'm calling from California, and here's my tip. Um, I often have really wonderful organic citrus fruit available, and I often only need the juice. I uh, peel the skin off the uh, citrus fruit before I actually juice them. I dehydrate them so they're really, really crisp, and then then I blend them in a coffee mill-type grinder um, to make it into a powder, which smells heavenly, and you can use it in um, recipes asking for lemon peel, lime peel, orange peel, all year long. Enjoy! If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips. Next up, it's a language lesson from Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant Martha, what's going on? Well, Chris, this week we've been thinking a lot about eggs. And if you'll egg us on, we'll tell you all about it. <laughs> oh, no. it's going to be. I, I can just tell it's going to be one of those segments, right? Egg jokes. Okay. All right. So if we say that we want you to egg us on, what comes to mind? It means you want me to provoke you to do something. But do you imagine pelting us with eggs? No, actually, I, no visual comes to mind. Although if I had to pick one, that would be it. Yes. That you're throwing <laughs> eggs at us. No, I, I prefer pelting. But yeah, okay. Oh, pelting. Throw, okay. Pelting. <laughs> Lovely. How about bribing us with eggs? Maybe you're whipping up an omelet or something. Oh, nice. Really? Cooking oh, some lovely eggs no. for breakfast, a quiche. I, I, didn't, I didn't think about that. But in any case, you're daring us to take a risk. It actually comes from a corruption of an Old Norse word, eggja, meaning to edge. It's spelled E-G-G-J-A. And so the edge comes in there because it's about driving someone to the edge of no return. Oh. And that is hmm. also the origin of our English word edge. In fact, that word, egya, still exists in Icelandic and Faroese, also descended from Old Norse. And in both of those languages, it can mean both to sharpen or to incite or instigate. And it also has taken on meanings that have to do with eggs. So it's no surprise that the same thing happened in English. So all three languages are related. There's the Old Norse background there. In any case, that's why we say you egg someone on. It's not about eggs. It's about pushing them to the edge. What a, what a great name for a brand. Egg ya. I love, <laughs> egg ya. I love that. <laughs> what would that be? That would be like um, uh, some fake egg mix at the store? Oh, yeah. It's, it's got to be eggs in a carton. Eggs egg in a carton. Yeah. And Chris, I would love to share with you one of my favorite expressions involving eggs. I'm sure you know somebody like this. Um, it's somebody who, well, as the Oxford English Dictionary says, they're known to break in fussily with an idle story. You know, you're having a conversation <laughs> with people, and all of a sudden somebody pops in with something that's kind of irrelevant and sort of stops the conversation down. Yes. And the expression is to come in with five eggs. If you come in with five huh. eggs, you break in fussily with an idle story. First of all, I know lots of people like that. It's probably me included, actually. <laughs> uh, but but how does the, the five egg thing, why does it have that meaning? Chris, I'm glad you asked because we have an answer for you. It's actually a shortening of a longer phrase that goes, five eggs a penny and four of them addle, or five eggs a penny and four of them rotten, meaning oh. that somebody comes into your conversation, maybe you're in the marketplace, and they're offering five eggs a penny and four of them are worthless. But I just love this expression because I know somebody who does this all the time, and it just sort of disrupts the conversation and you want to be polite, but um, they're coming in with their five eggs. What are you going to do? Throw the four rotten ones at them. <laughs> well, you want to break the egg in their pocket, Martha, right? That means to spoil spoil their plan. That's an old expression from the 1700s. Oh, there you go. The last huh. thing you want to do is egg them on, of course. 
Or in French, you would say, va te faire cuire un oeuf, go cook yourself an egg, which means go jump in a lake. <laughs> what? That's an interesting French expression, go cook yourself an egg. Well, it's a euphemism for a course phrase for telling someone to go do something that is anatomically impossible. <laughs> but but the French found a way to say something rude with a culinary overtone. Yes. They did. <laughs> and if you're really full or you're really drunk in French, then you're full like an egg, right, Grant? Yeah, or round like an egg, which you can also say in German, Norwegian, Swedish, and probably some other European languages. But the thing about Grant is that, as they would say in Spanish, sabe un huevo. He knows a lot. He knows an egg. I try to know an egg, yeah. You know an egg when you see one? <laughs> I do, yeah. I try not to look for bones in an egg, as they say in Mandarin Chinese. I try not to be overly critical. Well, at least the guys don't walk into the conversation with five eggs, right? <laughs> yeah. I feel, Martha, though, that you and I are, as they say in Spanish, um, como un huevo a otro. We are like one egg to another egg. We are two peas in a pot. Yes. Yes, indeed. We're, we're not, as they say in Spanish, como un huevo a una castaña, which means like an egg to a chestnut. Well, thank you for the multilingual uh, segment of... <laughs> <laughs> How many languages did you get into this? I, I think, think it was you got five or six. Ten or something, I don't know. <laughs> we love having you on the show because we just never know what to expect, right? Like a box of chocolates, right? Yeah, like a carton of <laughs> eggs. <yeah. laughs> Thank you guys so much, uh, Martha and Grant. Um, next time I will bring only two eggs to the conversation. Well, Chris, you are a good... Never mind. <laughs> Grant and Martha, thank you so much. Uh, everything you want to know about eggs, but we're afraid to ask. Thanks, Chris. Always a pleasure. Cheers, Chris. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, please download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take a free online cooking course, or you can order our latest cookbook, which is Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>